everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the podcast for the best online source for comics criticism, uh, news, reviews and previews. I'm talking of course about Sequart, buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, Matthew Mikolov is currently reviewing Michelle Pfeiff's Copra, the best well-known secret in comics. And if you're reading Sequart, you should probably also contribute to Sequart. So go to Patreon and give money to the smartest criticism for comics We do the heavy thinking, so you don't have to. And by the way, we is I, that is Tom Shapira, and... Hello, gaze into the fist of Sean. Oh, Judge Dredd. <laughs> that's Death Lives, right? Yep. Oh, that's a classic. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Sir Terry Pratchett. He passed away, I think, yesterday or... Two days ago, I think. By, yeah. by the time we record, it's two days ago. Yes. And that's at the age of... 66, mm-hmm. awfully young, but... Young, but it will be said that he is, I think, one of the most influential voices in modern fantasy. So that legacy I, will I'd say fiction, on. you know, why limit it? Fiction, you're right, you're right. You're right, and you know... A great 66. novelist, a great world maker. Yeah. And he, you know, it's a comics podcast. We should mention that uh, four of his books have been adapted to graphic novel form. Yeah, graphic Which, novels, television series. Sure. I mean, he... And we're both... For, we were huge fans. Yes. And we, we have to mention it and, you know, rest in peace mm-hmm. whenever and, and wherever guess, you are. And take some comfort in knowing that Discworld and the worlds that he created and the characters that he created will continue on in some form. Yeah, once you become that big, you can you never truly go away. Uh, and mentioning, you know, deaths, well... Uh, Yoshiru Tatsumi, who is a legend in alternative manga, mm. passed away at the age of 79 uh, last week. And He's best known for A Drifting Life, right? Well, that's his most recent award-winning creation. Mm. He did a lot of things. I'm ashamed to say that I did not read most of these things, but, you know, I have friends of mine, even those who are not... Heavy on the manga who swear in his name up and down. So mm. I think that's a good opportunity for me, for you, and for everybody's listening to catch a copy. Absolutely. Okay, that was sad. That was horribly sad. Let's do something happier. Okay. Or at least something we can laugh about. We'll start with DC. Sure. Because DC Comics has decided, either by coincidence or by intention, to give three of its best... Big icons uh, makeover. Oh, God. So, right after convergence, yeah. emergence, mm-hmm. preservance... Connectivity issues, yes. Yes. Uh, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman will get a new image. Is it Jim Lee again? No, no, no. It's three separate redesigns. No Jim Lee overdraft here. Which okay. is good. I guess. Uh, Wonder Woman is a David Finch redesign. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. And it- Stop right there. <laughs> no. Well, no. It's, it's, Thou shalt not. No. There were worse versions of Wonder Woman. And see, not I'm, by much. Uh, there were. There were. And see, I'm not even such a big fan of the Wonder Woman original design as it were. It's always... When it's you say al- original, though, do you mean post-crisis or like Golden Age original? But both of them. With the skirt. The skirt was okay, I guess. But as a whole, you know, a design of a character should say something about her. And Wonder Woman design was always such a grab bag of... Icons and elements because yeah. she had the red, white, and blue thing, even though she was an Amazon princess and the lasso. Yeah. 
and the pantsless and whatever. You know what the iconic look is? It's funny that I say this because that ended up being a complete non-starter. But you remember when Alan Heinberg was doing Wonder Woman and it was Donna Troy as Wonder Woman. But she had this like Roman gladiator outfit. Yeah. That was so good. She that, had like the cape, that was and so the good. armor, and, and the, the then, whole plate skirt. And then that comic did not came out. Yeah. It did not came out. It took yeah. them a year and a half Alan to Heinberg. do like, six what you, issues. What yeah. are you going to do? But I mean, I sort of wish that look had stuck around because she really did come across as a warrior there. And I mean, so what are they doing for her now? Like, what does she actually look like? Um, now? A whole mix of colors and armor stuff. And eh. Yeah. Uh, Superman is back to the jeans and t-shirt look, only without the towel cape that he had during Morrison's Action Comics run. Now, see, if he was a real person, we'd be saying that, you know, he's dressing like his son slash younger brother, Superboy, <laughs> and that indicates midlife crisis, but since... Well, I think the word crisis really should not see, come up in this I, context. I, I prefer over the armor because, as Chris Sims of Comics Alliance is fond of saying... Superman wearing an armor is stupid on yeah. so many reasons because yeah. there is nothing that his naked body can't stop that the armor can. Is Was the armor look sort of based on Man of Steel? No, it Costume? came before Man of Steel. I'm wondering whether there was some influence. Uh, I, think, I think it's in general. The, armor, the Man of Steel outfit was also sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah. armor-ish. Th- that was stupid because yeah. if you already bringing in, uh, what was his face for Man of Steel? Which one, who, the director? The act, no, the actor. Oh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Now, you're not bringing in Henry Cavill for his acting chops. You're bringing God, him no. in because he looks very good without a shirt on. So Which, then, if I remember, that film took adequate advantage of. Yeah, for a short while, but then you put him in this big blocky armor, which would make Woody Allen look buff. Why yeah. would you do it and give him, you know, a tight shirt? That's what they did for the Superman before Henry Cavill, right? Yeah, uh, Super- who, Superman just wore, you know, um, a costume. What was his name, though? The the guy who played Superman. Christopher before. Reeve. No. Oh, Brandon Routh. You mean. Brandon Routh. Yeah. That was, like, skin tight. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. And the most interesting one for me is Batman, who is now a mech. He's a Mac. S- specifically, <laughs> not a Mac. You know, Batman is a Mac, Superman is a PC. Oh, God. I would pay to watch... Wait, are you what- saying that he looks like Azrael now? No, no, no. That's is the thing. That's that the thing. Because we had, you know, Batman in the suit of armor has now been done thousands of times. You had it in the comics. You had it mm. in the TV shows. You had it in Kingdom Come. You had it in Brave and the Bold. But most of them are like, you know, big, threatening black thing. And this seems more like an anime influence design. Even his ears look more like rabbit ears. And it's the blue is much more colorful than the usual extremely dark verging on black. Have they said that there's an in-universe reason for these redesigns? Or is well, well, it's it appears to be not a thing made together because Scott Snyder is basically saying this is my vision of you know new Batman. It's a bigger, bolder thing. Right. And Scott Snyder say what you will about him. He never goes small when he can go gigantically no. huge, overpowered. Batman Year Zero replaces the classic gangster styling of Year One with uh, mopeds in post-apocalyptic future. <laughs> And I liked Year Zero, but that wasn't one over-the-top storyline. I mean, you have to give DC credit for that, at least. They don't seem to be interfering with Snyder the way that they have with other writers. Yeah, because, well, Snyder is the goose that lays the golden eggs. Yeah. You know. So at least we... at least And that, you know. I really like that design, mostly because I know it's going to turn back. It's so over-the-top. It's not just a new costume. It's Batman is now... They're not even saying if it's Batman in an exosuit or a robot or a replacement mm. or whatever. So it's so over the top that I know they're not aiming to keep it permanent. They're not even the pretension of, well, right. this is go- 
No, but you know, with Superman and Wonder Woman, there's the pretension of, well, this is their new look. And then with mm-hmm. Batman's like, well, yeah, this is the new Batman for, you know, whenever, whenever we want him to stay. It's a series of diminishing returns. Like, every time they try this, it lasts for a couple of years, and they always snap back to the status quo anyway. I mean, how long did that pants look really work for Wonder Woman? I think Azarello's run, she wasn't wearing pants, right? I don't know. It was a huge controversy, I think, because they started with pants, and then pants Yeah. And and Jim Lee basically told Dendy the over the internet, have you decided? Because I need to redesign her. And, you know, it was good looking, because it it was Chung, right? Yeah, drawing it. So, I, so I remember, you know, leafing through it, and it was, it looked good. The art was great. The story, we, well, okay. we can talk about that some other time. But I mean, it's these designs are at this point, it's just sales gimmicks. So whatever. Okay. What else? Well, there have been a few interesting power moves in terms of appointments. There have and, been a lot of interesting and power departures. Moves. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Jamie S. Rich, the author of Lady Killer, which we've reviewed, has been appointed Vertigo's senior editor. He has had He was some an editor editing. at Oni, I think. He was an editor at Oni, and he was an editor somewhere else and does not come to mind at the moment. But who who is he replacing? Well, he's just a senior editor, so he doesn't have to replace anybody in particular. I don't know. Based on his work on Lady Killer, he does seem to have some kind of affinity for coming up with new ideas and really vertigo needs because defibrillators yeah the recent relaunch wasn't a huge success mm-hmm. you know astro city is pumping along as astro city does in every publisher that it's ever found and salmon overture was a huge disaster because Fables is about to end well sandman overture i think they knew as soon as it was neil gaiman and jh williams working together i think they were like you know what However long it takes, it'll ultimately be a trade. And it's the trade that you put after the wake on your bookshelf, right? Yeah. Like, you know, number 11. Yeah, but. So I think they knew that on yeah, some but, level. Yeah, but Dead Boy Detective doesn't seem to hold up. It's uh, gone, I think. It's yeah, and Hinter King is either cancelled or about to be cancelled. Can- no, Hinter King is ending. Fables is ending. Unwritten is, is just ended. So yeah. it's, all their big names have ended and they never found the magic replacement because. No. Uh, Vertigo has always worked, always worked in waves of what was popular. You know, it started with your Swamp Things and Animal Man, mm-hmm. and then your Sandman, and then your Invisibles, and then your Transmetropolitans. And there was always either a flagship title or titles. And yeah. now, what is it? It used to be Why the Last Man, and then when that ended, I think Fables became yeah, sort of the fame. default flag bearer just because it was the only one that was really long well, running. Fables was the only one besides them and who managed to become a franchise. And now, like, you know, they're wrapping it up. I do think there's been talk that even after Willingham departs and the main series closes down, that there will be more spin-offs and more There's The Wolf Among Us. Amongst Us. It's a miniseries, I think. Really? I it's based know. on the video game, so there's sort of like a... Okay. What's the next big thing at Vertigo? I hope Rich manages to bring that in, because quite frankly, they're losing, is what's happening. We, we've said it before. Like The reason that they are losing is because Image is producing the books that Vertigo should have been producing. And the reason like, Image is producing them is because they give their creators yeah. better offerings. Not the new, you owe everything to DC Comics if you want to produce here. Yeah, but also, I think as soon as Karen Berger left, sort of steam went out, and now it's just like... What is Kernberger doing nowadays? Enjoying her retirement, I hope. I mean, she earned it. Yeah, but, you know, there was talk about her moving to a new place, and it's been, what, two years now? There hasn't been any announcements. She's, you know, sitting on a bitch, drinking a margarita. and Listen, and just, she oversaw and, and, some of, like, the biggest projects that Vertigo ever put out. She and should look, be sitting on a beach somewhere and, drinking Mai Tais. And looks at Vertigo and laughs and laughs. I don't... I sort of feel like, you know, if you were in charge of Vertigo during the heyday, and you saw what it was now, you'd be like... 
The second I turned my back, <laughs> look what you all did. Uh, speaking of uh, long-term editors mm. leaving, Diana Schultz, oh. uh, who was at Dark Horse for 25 years. This is like the killing blow, is what it is. When Dark Horse lost Star Wars, you had a lot of doomsayers being like, Oh, it's the end, it's the end. But obviously, you know, Dark Horse still had a lot going for it. But losing Diana Schultz, I mean, this is a woman who, like Karen Berger, she oversaw some of Dark Horse's greatest successes as a publisher. And the fact that she's leaving, it's the end of an era on the one hand, but it's also... Well, what now? I'm not a doomsayer. Dark Horse is, you know, still flooding up new ideas. They have Fight Club coming up soon. They have <laughs> Rebels. They have Rebels coming up soon. They're launching new series. They're not yeah. stuck in a rut and they're like blowing their heads and crying, oh my God, we lost Star Wars. Everything is doomed. Right. I mean, losing Star Wars was a hit. But yeah. I think losing Schultz is worse. Losing Star Wars was a financial hit. This is a creative hit. Yes. She oversaw Grendel. She actually contributed, I think... What I personally believe to be the only good Grendel spin-off that ever came out of it. Uh, um, I think it was War Child. I get, I'm getting the same feeling here that I got when Karen Berger left Vertigo. Like, well, but this... in a way, Karen Berger was Vertigo and yeah. Diana Schultz, you know, she's a big influence off, but she's not Dark Horse. Cause Dark Horse is larger than Vertigo yeah. as, as a publishing entity, but. Yeah, sad uh, I, news. Uh, I hope she goes somewhere. Well, it's sad if she didn't want to go and she was forced to go. I think she just said 25 years, you know. Yeah, I guess. I'm going. I need a break. I, I grew tired of, of overwatching Buffy spin-offs. Ooh, wouldn't anybody? I mean, listen, I've been reading some of those. Oh, uh, my God. I've been trying to put together the Goon Library edition and my hands are <laughs> tired. These things are heavy. You know what would be cool, though? If they Karen Berger, up, no, like Karen Berger <laughs> and Diana Schultz need to like get together and be like, you know what? Let's start a comics publishing. publishing. Let's revive Eclipse. Sure, why not? You know, like, if Valiant can succeed, get back into it. Well, speaking of Valiant, oh yeah, speaking that of- is actually an interesting seed too. Okay, so Valiant will follow Marvel and DC into the film world. And they're attempting to engineer their own cinematic universe. Yes, they've signed a deal with DMG Entertainment in China. And they're producing Valiant movies like uh, Exo Manowar, Bloodshot, Shadow Man. Archer and Armstrong. Okay, so on the surface of it, this seems absurd. I mean, Valiant's properties are nowhere near as recognizable as Marvel's or DC's, so it is an uphill battle. But? But. We are living in a universe in which Mm. Rocket Raccoon... Sells a million dollar in that, merchandise. That should not have come as a surprise to anyone, though. People always cite Rocket Raccoon as being like this big revelation, but if we're being completely honest, no, you but, know, but we're it talking just, rac- foul mouth raccoon. There was no way that was. But it work. just means that the fact that you're uh, not famous in comics means nothing about your possible success right. as a film but, franchise. And we knew well, that since Blade, because nobody cared about Blade before the movie, right? I mean, specifically with Valiant, it's worth pointing out that while. The concepts themselves are sort of weird. The rebooted Valiant comics were, generally speaking, successful. When you describe Valiant properties in like a two-sentence phrase, it does seem sort of like Bloodshot is the grim, dark... Albino uh, assassin. Albino assassin who heals himself. Harbinger is about a kid with special powers, finds out there are other kids with special powers. So when you boil it down, it does seem very, very derivative and cliché. But the rebooted comics have been successful within the market, which I guess indicates that the ideas themselves, or rather the specific execution of those ideas, 
can work. There is no bad idea, only bad creators. Ninjak is kind of a bad idea, no matter which way you slice it. I feel like Ninjak... Unhand Larry Hama. Ooh. He will call the legions of Cobra upon you. Okay, um, <laughs> the thing that, you know, baffles me is the insistence that this has to be a cinematic universe. Because... Everything's a cinematic yeah, universe. Yeah, it's, it's like 10 years ago, everything was a trilogy. Yeah. Even though it didn't need to be. And now everything is a cinematic universe, even though it doesn't need to be. It can be. It doesn't need to be. It, the question isn't whether you can do it, it's whether you should. You heard this announcement about they're doing another Ghostbusters film, all-male version, to be like the counterpart to the all-female version? I've heard it, and I assume it's an Onion thing. They're calling, I assume it's a parody. No, they're calling it Ghost Core. I would not believe it until I see it, and even then, I would not believe it. This is sort of the situation where you see a trend, and you try to adapt that trend, but you don't understand why that trend works. Marvel Cinematic Universe is not successful because it's a cinematic universe. It's successful because Kevin Feige and his collaborators have pieced it together very carefully. And they were very, very, very detailed in the connective tissue between the films. If you don't do that, if you don't do the work and you just say it's a cinematic universe, it's not going to work. I always assumed it was successful because Chris Hemsworth never wore a shirt. I always assumed I'm sure that, that was part of it. I always assumed that I'm was sure. the reason for success. I mean, listen, it's no coincidence that the first three films of, you know, Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr., and Chris Evans yes. all appear shirtless in their first films. I'm sure that that plays a part. I'm sure of it. When you say something like, you know, the Valiant universe is going to be a cinematic universe, Valiant doesn't really have that kind of necessity to exist in a shared universe. I mean, you can do Harbinger on its own. I read Harbinger on its own, and it holds up perfectly fine as a self-contained piece. Yeah, you can do Archer and Armstrong on its own. Uh, Or um, Quantum and Woody. Yeah. You don't need a a shared universe setting for that. If they want to create it, I appreciate the ambition. The warning that I would give them would be, do not assume that the audience will do the work for you. And the important thing to remember, again, is that the Marvel Universe didn't start with a huge plan of, well, this... You know, they didn't launch Iron Man 1 with, this is going to be the whole universe. They launched it, it was successful, and then they went for it. When things nowadays start with, you know, the plan for the universe rather than the plan for the one movie, Mm -hmm. it bust. We we had the Dracula Untold thing. Oh, God. Which started with, well, we're doing a Universal Monsters universe without anybody ever thinking about the movie as a thing by itself. They kept thinking about... The universe, and that's why they failed. Well, this is also... And this is why DC fails. DC is trying to work backwards. They're saying, we'll start with the Justice League, and then we'll break them down afterwards. It's a different approach. Make a good movie and follow it. Not think about an idea and make a movie from it. Exactly. There's something to be said for the fact that even the Marvel Cinematic Universe has now made the mistake of projecting too far into the future. You know, they have told us basically... I don't remember who said this, but it was a very salient point. They said, we are never going to go into another Marvel film and be surprised by the ending, the post credit scene, because we know what they're going to be doing until 2020. So there's no sense of suspense anymore. Like, we know Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Avengers, uh, Infinity War, da We know what's coming for the next decade. So... I think that might have been a misstep on their part because now, like, how do you surprise your audience? How do you do something that they're not expecting? You introduced the power pack. When Samuel L. Jackson turned up at the end of Iron Man 1, I was in that theater. People were like, their jaws dropped to the floor. 
Like, they did not believe what they were seeing. And then he says, you know, we want you for the Avengers initiative. What? What did he say? And then, like, Mjolnir turns up at the end of The Incredible Hulk, and people were freaking out. I mean, I've had the advantage of knowing more about these films than the people who are seeing it with me in the theater. But when they get to those post credit scenes, people were flipping out. Well, you were, you weren't expecting what came out at the end of Guardians. <laughs> See, nobody saw that coming, and... Oh, and, we're going to talk about him later. No, today. and we're going to talk about it later, but if the responses were even more positive for that, I guarantee you, we would have had Howard the Duck TV show announced yeah. by now. The only reason it didn't happen is because people don't know who he is. Like, There's no realistic expectation yeah. that people would react to the sight of Howard, yeah. right? Howard the Duck, in the way that they did, I'm trying to think here, at the end of Avengers... Was it Avengers? When no. Thanos turns up at yeah. the very end. And he's like, you know, to challenge them is to court death. And he turns yeah. around and says, you know who he is. You know who Thanos is. I was confused. Is. I thought you were talking about sh- some sort of shawarma man, which I did not know. Oh, the shawarma clip. Man. That was so a- cute. Anyway, but what I want to say about Howard the Duck, somebody made the very salient point that Disney bought Marvel, Disney bought Lucas, and the first filmic property that it did <laughs> based on both of them together was not Star Wars, was not Indiana Jones, it was Howard the Duck. And they That's are the very first much, Lucas. They are very much aware of that. We're talking about Howard the Duck number one today, and there is a reference there to the film. Yeah. So we will get to that. Okay. More news. More news. Uh, so speaking of interesting initiatives, which may or may not succeed, Black Mask Studios has launched its own YouTube channel, Digital Comics. Sorry, sorry. Mm. Tube Comics. Mm. It's an adaptations of some of their comics, and for a reason which I cannot quite explain, Five Ghosts. Images, Five Ghosts. Well, they're producing it for different... And it's still coming out through Images, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, it's not coming out now. I think it's sort of in... Because they just... Maybe, but they just announced the hardcover of the first two art from Image. So, yeah. So it's not being bought over to... Black Mask. So. No, Black Mask isn't publishing it. I think what they're doing is they're helping the creators adapt it to other media. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, you have uh, Five Ghosts, you have uh, 12 Ways to Die, and you have Ballistic, and all for free, by the way, at least mm-hmm. for now. I'm not crazy about motion comics. No. I don't uh, now, like the things them. that they're doing better than previous attempts in motion comics is that they dispensed a whole with the idea of limited movement. You don't mm-hmm. have... Somebody sticking up their arm up and down. Oh, I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> like that horrible, that's like astonishing... Those, that's like those signs that you see on the side of the road that are like, you know, come yeah. drink beer with us. <laughs> yeah, so it's just the camera panning over the screen, over the panels, with actors doing voiceovers. Mm-hmm. And some uh, musical accompaniment for the song parts. I've watched Ballistic Number 1, after having read Ballistic Number 1 two years ago. It's not bad, but it's not very good. It's not a comic, and it's not an animation. It's sort of a bastard child, which is not even a thing of its own. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I did not like it. Maybe it's going to be a thing of its own in the future. We don't know. I guess the best thing you can say about it is that, if nothing else, the fact that it's on YouTube will certainly draw more attention back to the comics. That might be a possibility. And I'm really hopeful for Black Mask in this year. They're launching a whole lot of new series. They're bringing Mm -hmm. out a whole bunch of new talent. And I mean new in the term of... Never heard of these people, and I like not hearing about these people. Yeah. Uh, well, that sounded negative, sorry. No, I like I mean, that, like, I did you not like that yet. they're unknown. Yes. They have the potential to be, you know, it could be great, it could be crap, but at least you have the possibility. You know, it's not like when you're reading image solicitations and you have a reasonable expectation of, you know, if you're, if there's a new Brian Vaughn comic. There's something almost really, again, early Vertigo-ish about Black Mask right now, because not only are they bringing all those young voices, 
They're telling you right in advance, yeah, we're going to be in your face. We're going to be political. We're going to be radical. Okay, maybe I'm an older... Like when you say it like that, I'm yeah. like, eh. I'm an older man now. And when I hear somebody launching a book called Young Terrorists about mm. fighting the capitalism, I'm saying, well, maybe right now that's not a thing we need. But I'm thinking back about Young Tom. And that's the sort of thing that would blow him over. It's like, yeah, something mm. not content with the situation as it is. Something going forward. For good or ill. I just like being preached to on principles. So if it's a well, comic that is meant to, like... Well, a lot of those this early... This is bad! Lot... And you should feel bad! That doesn't really... Well, a lot of these early Vertigo comics were very preachy. I like Transmetropolitan, but that's Warren Ellis preaching oh, listen, to you all the Trans- way. Transmetropolitan was basically, you know, Warren Ellis with a microphone, like, screaming into your face. Basically, I mean, Swamp Thing had that yeah. whole thing with the toxic waste and... But at least back then, you could say they weren't very subtle. Something like what Peter David does, which is in the middle of the story, a character is going to be like, let me talk to you about Islamophobia. We don't have to. You know, it's like you are standing in the middle of New York, surrounded by superheroes. There's about to be a fight. We don't have to talk about Islamophobia right now. We can get to it later or maybe save it for the letter pages. It's the tell, don't show that irritates me. If you want a political message in your comics, by all means, do it. Let me reach that conclusion. Like, don't tell me what I should be thinking. It's just a personal bugbear of mine. Don't, don't tell like it to that. George Orwell's ghost. Okay. So there's a tiny controversy that I'd like to address. Okay. And in addressing this, I am first going to say... Okay, so Michelle Rodriguez. Full disclosure, I really like her as an actress. Big fan of Michelle Rodriguez, but she recently stepped in a bit of a mess. She was asked about playing Green Lantern. Sort of an off-the-cuff question. Because everybody seems to be asked about playing Green Lantern nowadays. Well, they're, not, I, I was, they're not going back to Ryan Reynolds, I was, that's for sure. I was offered the part, but I refused <laughs> because I'm busy. Yeah, where's the time for it? She said, and I'm going to quote her. So she said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This whole minorities in Hollywood thing is so stupid. Stop stealing all the white people's superheroes. Make up your own. Now, she got blasted for this. And I think... Is that Michelle Rodriguez or someone from Fox News wearing her mask? Listen, I'll tell you what the thing is, though. And it doesn't absolve her because there's no way she could know this. But she's not wrong. Think about this. This is what Dwayne McDuffie was saying all those years ago, right? That if you really want diversity in comics, you need to create new characters with their own identities instead of legacies and knockoffs who would always be in the shadow of their white predecessors. The problem, and again, like this is why it doesn't take Rodriguez off the hook, because there's no way in hell that she knew this, but the direct market is hostile to new characters. It is really, really hard to launch not even necessarily a new minority character, but just sort of like new characters in general. There's yeah, it never took twenty years for Deadpool to catch on. Yeah. Twenty years. I mean, when you think about it, who was the last really iconic what, Punisher? You know, Wolverine, like those yeah, levels and of that's popularity. Nineteen seventies, exactly. Like, so it is very, very hard to bring in new characters. To say nothing of the fact of minority characters who have it even worse. So we're getting characters like America Chavez and Kate Kane and Robbie Reyes as heirs to existing titles, simply because that's the only way they could see the light of day. I'm not saying that it's fair, but that is all there is. The odd thing is that she was talking about the Green Lantern. If, and if there is one concept that you can basically shove in any actor and say, he's a Green Lantern now, that's the Green Lantern. Because yeah. the whole point is, there's thousands of them. Quite frankly, if Michelle Rodriguez played Green Lantern, you know I would be in the front row like, hell yes. Because she would kick 
all of the asses. And we, you all, we've and had Green Lantern as the straight white guy, and it didn't work. So you might as well go for something off the, you know. And you also didn't worry when you went to the Justice League movie because you knew who was going to die. You yeah. knew which superhero was going to... Oh, come on. It's yeah. like Sean Bean by now. It's, no, you're right. The I mean, directors and writers know it. They know it. They run with it. Yeah, it's like it's sort of like an open secret. Just like, yeah. Oh, sure. So that's sort of the complicated issue here. Like on the one hand, the way that she phrased it and the fact that she was not referring to the difficulty of creating new characters is what makes it very problematic for her specifically. Well, but I don't know but the context. The point Maybe she... she was just annoyed at someone. What are you asking me this question? Who is Green Lantern? Why should I care? Well, no. What she said specifically was that she did not like the idea of, for example, a Latino character assuming a white superhero's identity. Which, you know, Miles Morales, right? Yeah, well, that's but, but that's what the guys in the new milestone basically said. We don't like that. Exactly. I mean, the new milestone, no, the, old, and the milestone. old milestone. This was always the thing. It's like we need to create static, not Miles Morales. But on the other hand, where's static now versus where's Miles Morales? Right? Like there is something to be well, said for the character. Well, now, but static the... did have a five-season TV show. Sure. The, but... the only reason he's not in a movie now is because somebody is stupid. Because the people who grew up on that TV show are now in their late twenties, but and Spider-Man. they would watch it. You take all of that, all of that is absolutely true, and then you compare it to Spider-Man. Like, even if Spider-Man is not Peter Parker, the name Spider-Man well, still ha- will always have more power and more recognition. So I feel like if that's the only way we can get diversity, or the most secure way, Batwoman was not a character who really existed in DC... Post like the 80s crisis. Yes. There was the old version of Kathy Kane, but she was not a character that you would want around. I mean, she fought crime with a purse, with makeup. I remember I that. Mean, oh, yeah, that was bad. And, and then and Morrison then, brought her back. And then you bring in, like, you know, this Jewish redheaded lesbian to play Batwoman. And she is, I mean, when you talk about Batwoman today, that's the version that people refer to. Yeah. She has become sort of iconic in that sense. On the other hand, she's one of those victims of comic book time. Because oh, yeah. her origin story was she was kicked out of West Point for refusing Don't yeah. Ask, Don't Tell. Mm-hmm. And two years from now... It was overturned. Now it's overturned and it still can be in her history. But in the very near future, mm-hmm. the reason that she was kicked out of the army is no longer valid. Well, listen, that's like saying Magneto was the victim yeah. of the Holocaust. You know, well, you, you and, sort of and accept they, And they kept doing that. Uh, quick TV roundup. Yeah, just to point out that the CW has announced that there's going to be another addition to the Flash Arrowverse, uh, which is what it's being called. Uh, they need to think of a better name. They really do. Uh, it's the Adam, Firestorm, and Captain Cold, all three of which have appeared in the Flash. Make it a sitcom, have them share an apartment in that game. Two of them are heroes. One of them's a robber. This is crazy hijinks and chew. This is exactly the reason why I'm a little concerned. There is such a tone discrepancy between Arrow and Flash, in the sense that I legitimately enjoy Flash because it's fun, and Arrow is basically Batman. It's really dark. They did it since uh, Smallville, when they brought in Green Arrow because they couldn't bring in Batman. Even Smallville, though, like in terms of the tone, was never quite as relentlessly... Well, it's fitting, because Green Arrow was created as a Batman ripoff, so yeah. you know that's the logical extension. So th- when you have that kind of... <clears throat> difference in tone and then they said well there's going to be a third series if it's more like the flash than arrow i'll watch it if it's more like arrow i'll be like i don't really don't or it can be its own thing which is also a possibility so it's sort of the fact that the flash is so successful is by no means 
sort of a catch-all, hey, let's just launch everything and it'll all turn out equally successfully. I hope it works. I'm kind of annoyed that if Captain Cold is on this show, I'm assuming he's not going to come back to Flash. Why not crossover? They, they launched Xena from Hercules and didn't stop her from appearing in that show. She never... Well, when did she appear in Hercules? Like twice? She Over did. six years? She had her own thing. She was busy. She was in Asia. Then she was like in, in Hong Kong. And then, you know, she went to South Africa. She got around. Yeah, Greece. She traveled a lot. Yeah. She met Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> she met Jesus, Caesar, and Boudicca. That was stupid Good though. for you. It was... <laughs> I mean, even you, in the context of that show, you want to talk problematic. Like, I mean, she met Santa Claus <laughs> before she met Jesus. So, like, yeah. Oh God, Zena, Zena, Zena. Is it like weird that I miss that show? Yes, it is weird because you should be ashamed of yourself. I, I don't know. I feel like there you was, can miss you can miss Lossy Lols in general. You don't have to miss. No, no. Zena. I'm talking about like Zena. There's nothing really like that on these days. Good, it's like this. Campy action. Good. I kind of miss it, I'll be honest. Uh, anyway, so one uh, other bit of... This is sort of a confusing report. I'm not entirely okay. sure what to make of it. James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy, announced that for the first time in nine years, Marvel Studios would not be attending San Diego Comic-Con. Now, this was seen <laughs> as a very, very strange development because traditionally speaking, Marvel tends to dominate San Diego Comic-Con. Did you see when they brought out Tom Hiddleston as Loki? Yes. I mean, listen. I've, we've heard it all the way from there to here in Israel. They were like enthralled. I have never seen. They hung on his every word. And a lot of that is down to like Tom Hiddleston's performance. He is who he is for a reason. See, it's ironic because they beg subjugation. They would kneel before him if he asked them to. He did. He said like, you know, you'll all kneel. And like there were people who they actually did it. And as soon as he put his fingers to his lips, the entire hall went dead. So they have always had a very, very strong presence. And to skip it, I guess on the one hand, that means they're very confident because... They don't need it. They don't need it. Age of Ultron is coming out in a couple of months. I'm pretty sure they feel like, you know, because, we're good. Because uh, for a long time, ever since Comic-Con stopped being about comics and became about the media, mm-hmm. for a long time it was seen as a launching pad for your movies, TV show, whatever, a chance for the geek media to bring in the hype for you. But Marvel don't need it. The hype will follow them. At this point of, of their existence, they don't have to travel, they don't have to bring up the actors, they don't have to pay yeah. people to do it. Because the mm. biggest announcement that they made wasn't even at Comic-Con. It was uh, when they, they had that Disney theater where they revealed Infinity yeah. War and the whole structure of the Marvel Phase yeah. 3. They could have saved that for Comic-Con and, and blown the roof off the place. But And a lot of things that launched through Comic-Con that were seen as a success in Comic-Con in San Diego actually failed, you know, because yeah. Scott Pilgrim, you know, got... Huge blowout in Comic-Con and launched as, what, number three movie and then disappeared? The Great Injustice of Our yeah, Time. That, that was a great movie, but yeah. the fact that Comic-Con likes you doesn't necessarily mean that the public and large will like you, yeah. even in this geek-saturated age. And Marvel knows, rightfully so, that they're, they're, bigger, they're bigger than that right now. They don't now. need the help. Here's where it gets interesting, though. Tom Brevard went on Twitter, because of course he did, and said that they were going to SCCC. Is he telling the truth this time? It's gaslighting. He's gaslighting us. I am just thinking now of like that meme of Kathy Bates, like lies. Well, it's Marvel. Like, Marvel. Who, who Marvel? do you trust, James Gunn or Tom Brevard? Who, who has more credibility in your opinion? I know neither of these people. I don't follow Twitter, so 
I understand that our Mr. Uh, Brevard. Yeah, our Mr. Brevard has a bit of a reputation. Well, let's just say if there's a hell for liars... Yeah. It's Mar- <laughs> I trust Marvel movies over Marvel Comics in terms oh, of... Oh, God, yeah. In terms of what they're saying, because Marvel Comics has that thing of saying one thing and then like, we didn't mean it. Re- yeah. Remember when DC had their holding the line at 299? And Marvel oh followed... Oh, my God. And Marvel Remember followed... Remember dead means dead? No, no, but Marvel followed immediately and that was a big thing. And we are also holding the line at 299. A day later... Well, here are all our new four dollar uh, titles. Four dollar? You're being generous. And and no, that was in the time when four dollar oh, was still oh, a right thing. back then. Back then, mm-hmm. like three four years ago, and everybody yeah. was like, "You said holding the line two ninety nine? No, we didn't. Also, yes, yes, you did. We have we have recording of you. No, you do not. Ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Trying to weak ass Jedi mind tricks on us. <laughs> yeah. But well, there's also the sort of unfortunate truth that we have no reason to believe. Anything Marvel Comics staff claim to know about Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because you never see Joe Quesada sitting next to Joss Whedon on a stage. Never happens. They're like, they are their own entity. If they answer to anyone, they answer to Disney. Joe Quesada can say Spider-Man's not married until hell freezes over. You know, if Kevin Feige says, no, he's married to Mary Jane, that's what's going to happen. We're at the point where the movies are starting to dictate content to the comics. No. So I don't think... No, we're not at that point. We, oh. we've all, we, no, we've Scarlet all, Witch. No, what I'm saying is we've always been at that point. Outer media has dictated comics since its inception. Superman couldn't fly before the Fleischer films made him fly. Kryptonite was introduced as, the, as part of the Superman radio hour. People get annoyed about it nowadays, you know, like, oh my god, the movies are changing the source. They've always been doing that. Yeah. They've been doing it since forever because... Surprise, well, but movies there was a are more popular. Where that wasn't true. There was a period where it was seen as more comics influencing other media. Tim Burton's Batman is absolutely the product of Frank Miller's work. You can't work around it. It's just there. Granted that Burton took it like in the whole psychosexual thing going on over there. There's a whole book to be written about it. So there was a period of time where that seemed to sort of go in a different direction. And I mean, really, like, what influence did, I don't know, Dean Cain's Superman have on the comics? The wedding? Was that, that? Th- no, that's important. No, that was an event that no, was no, engineered no, to no, happen simultaneously. Yeah, see, they, see, that's important because they wanted to do the wedding together and they had to stall for time. And what was their solution? The death of Superman. Here you go. That's a huge. I influence. thought that the series no. was delaying because they did that whole clone. Yeah, yeah. Thing. no, no. What I'm saying is the comics wanted to do the wedding together with the series, right? And the series was delayed, mm-hmm. and so the people at the comics said, "Well, we have to do something to hold the line before the next big event, which would have been the wedding. Mm-hmm. Let's kill Superman." And thus, the, the death, death of, Superman. of Superman lasted for like a year. Yeah, that took a lot of time. But what was happening with the series in the meantime? I don't know. I have not watched Lois and Clark in the dog's ages. What do you want from no, me? No, because the reason I'm asking is what? Just by- how much influence did TV have over the comics in terms of content? Did the Joker change because of Mark Hamill's version on the well, animated Harley series? Quinn was introduced to the comic Harley universe. Harley Quinn was introduced, but she was and a Cla- new character. Clayface from the Paul Dini animated series mm. is now the common Clayface. And before that, you had like... Four different clay faces. None of right. them actually had any clay powers, which oh. was stupid. Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze was in the 60s. No, but the, the tragic version of, oh, he's a poor person and, uh, mm. and you know, his wife and feel pity for him. That's from the TV show. Okay. Outer media has always shaped comics and been shaped by comics. Right. So that's not new. Okay, the last news is that Powers, the TV show, 
has launched. Sony put the first episode for free on YouTube for like five hours. Okay. During which I have watched it. So I haven't seen it, but spoil away. It's interesting. It's not very good. And I think that the show has been through a lot of rewrites because there have been dozens of attempts to bring powers onto the oh, screen yeah. ever this since, ever since years. the series. So, and you can almost see it because the writing is so haphazard. It starts with a bit of action and then there's an announcement on the news, which is basically exposition time. You know, this is the situation of these characters, which now watch this thing. What a coincidence that they're watching this thing while I explain their history. Right. And then 20 minutes later, Christian Walker is sitting with a person in the interview room and that person like, oh, you're Christian Walker. I will repeat the same exposition, which I said earlier. Mm. And they keep on bringing on the same points over and over again. Like, you know, the viewers are very slow. Would you say that that's typical of a pilot episode? <clears throat> I don't Or know. like more extreme than you usually I find. think I found it more extreme. I admittedly, I don't watch a lot of TV or genre TV. Okay. Maybe I'm missing something. but And also, Charlotte Coplay... Not a good fit for Christian Walker because he's doing the dark voice where everything he says is like yeah. this. And I get why he's doing it because non-American actors are always doing this when they're trying to do an accentless version of an American character. Because well, also I wonder if that might be a deliberate choice because his superhero identity is meant to be an analog to Batman. Maybe, but what, you know, what but was he called? Nightmask? No, Diamond. Diamond, Diamond. I never thought of him as a Batman. Why did I think Nightmask? Because he has like that mask in the comics? Because I never thought of him as a Batman analog. He had powers, you know? He he was part of a group. No, but in, in terms of his look. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like when you see, I mean, design for him, yeah. like the square jaw and yeah. the black hair, he looks a lot like Bruce Wayne from the animated series. All of the men in Michael Avon Omings comics have square jaws. <laughs> And like gigantic shoulders. You know, the writing was all over the place. Dina How Pil- are the actors? Again, Charlotte Coplay, not yeah. very good. Dina Pilgrim, the actress was good. The role, again, wasn't written very well because she seemed to change moods with every new scene. You know, hello, I'm, I'm the new person. And I'm like, I hate you. And then, <laughs> and then I don't know what's going on. And then I'm poor. I like the changes. I like that she has a backstory of she has been between positions and she has to live with her mom because mm-hmm. she doesn't have money. That's a good that's idea. No. Yeah, that's a good idea. I like that in this universe, uh, everybody knows that Christian Walker was Diamond. Right. And he's like an ex-celebrity and everybody's like, oh yeah, you're that guy. You And either I liked you or you sucked. And I like the fact that they bringing in the whole teenagers uh, adoring power straight from the beginning. There's like a subculture of powers fans. Mm-hmm. So I like the changes because I've read the comics. I don't need a one-to-one adaptation. One-to-one adaptation is a bad idea. What I don't like is the actual execution of the show. Okay. Is Uh, this something that you think you'll be watching more of uh, going forward? uh, Only if if people that I trust will give it good reviews as it goes along, I'll come back. Otherwise, as you often say, I do not have the time for this. Right. Good, sir. Well... I'm probably going to binge on the entire season once it's done, although I have no idea how many episodes this season... I think 13. Oh, oh, 13 is easy. I can do 13 standing <laughs> on my head. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll probably, like, binge it and then maybe bring it up. Warning, the smorgasbord does not recommend that you binge-watch episodes while standing over your head. <laughs> no, that can cause headaches. So, let's that, move on to the reviews. Let's move on to the reviews. We've had, we were spoiled for choice uh, for this particular episode. There were a whole bunch of number ones. Quite a few interesting prospects. Uh, we'll start with uh, Southern Cross, yes. right? By written by Becky Cloonan, art by 
Andy Belanger. And Lee Laurie John Colors. Mm-hmm. And that's through Image Comics because, of course, it's through Image Comics. Yeah. So. What say you? What say I? Okay, Southern Cross is a science fiction thing. Mm-hmm. Again, Image. And it's a mystery in space thing. Again, Image. Uh, it's better than most mystery in space comics from Image that we covered recently. Can I ask you something? Yes. Did you find it hard to ignore the fact that the initial premise here is identical to the first issue of Roche Limit, which we reviewed? No, because this was better than Roche Limit. Significantly better. Yeah, but yeah like, because I knew what was y- going on. Young woman with a troubled past traveling to another world to investigate the death of her sister. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's very, very, very similar. Now, Clunin, so much better. See, I'm always sad when Clooney is writing, not because she's a bad writer, but because she's such a great artist, and I'm always like, but I want to see the pretty pictures. <laughs> Can't you also draw it, please? And not that Andy Bellinger does a bad work. He does a very serviceable yeah. job. No, his his artwork is really good. There's that double-page spread of the ships on the yeah. dock. Looks phenomenal. And also the nice shot of them going through the various docks on the stairs, you know. Mm-hmm. When he's uh, explaining yeah. to her, and they're going through the, the ship's... Dex? Okay. Absolutely. So it's a science fiction universe. This is low tech, uh, almost more like alien than Star Wars. First alien. Where travel between close planets, this is between Earth and the moons of Titan, is mm-hmm. months. Yeah. And th- th- we have this woman who travels uh, to Titan in order to take her sister's belonging after she died in an accident, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But also she wants to discover if this was an accident, quote unquote. And because we read these comics, we know that this was not an accident, quote, unquote. Or it might have been. I mean, you never know. That, that's it would be an anticlimax. Like, we end the first arc, she's on yeah. Titan, it's like, well, it was yeah, an accident. Yeah, I'm she going. tripped, she fell, that's the end of it. <laughs> I'm going home now. Though all of this issue is aboard the ship as it travels, and we meet her, her roommate. Well, the crew of na- the ship. Yeah, the also. crew of the ship and her neighbor. No, yes. The guy in the cabin next door. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly an introduction to the cast. Towards the end, there's something mysterious going on. Yeah. And it's good. You know, it's good in the term of pilot TV episode good in, okay, we know the stakes, we know the plot, we know the universe, we know the characters. It looks good. You know, if this was a TV show, I would say it's well directed. Mm -hmm. The only problem I have is that, like you said, we've seen it. Specifically, we've seen it through image and even more specifically... We've reviewed it. We haven't just seen it. We've seen it through image less than a year ago. And, you know, I don't blame them. It's it's not all of them sitting together in a room saying, we'll do this, we'll do that. Isn't and, it? No. I because mean, everybody editors, aren't well, I mean, editorial yeah. would probably be aware of this. I think the reason that this happens so often is simply because as a company that prioritizes creator-owned work, they don't have to say no. It doesn't affect them one way or another if two creators are writing similar books. It doesn't matter to them. This is Becky Cloonan's book, not science fiction book number 25. This is Becky Cloonan's science fiction book. So I think that might be why they allow books with similar premises. Yeah, okay. And sort of there are a few other problems with this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is, I'm not quite sure about the scale of life on board the ship that they're traveling on. Because it seems like a huge, giant ship. But then at one point, the captain meets her and tells her, oh, yes, I know you are, who you are. I went over the crew manifesto. I'm like, how many people are on this ship then? You know, if you can actually, well, if you can actually a- recognize every single one of them 
based on the single line. Oh, hello, I'm this. Oh, your sister. Like, he knows who her sister is. Right. So, how many people are on that ship? Dozens? Hundreds? Thousands? Well, well, no. I think what's implied is that this is not a transport ship. The ship that she is on is an oil tanker that is doing double duty as a passenger vessel to the moons of Titan. And here we have sort of the situation where the captain would know the crew. It's his crew. Yeah, the crew, yes. So, but not, so he knows the, the passengers, passengers, and really we don't see a whole bunch of passengers yeah, that, per but se. That's, that's my problem is I would like to know the scale. Like how many right. people are on that ship because it's part of the universe building that you're doing here. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that he meets her and they're like, oh, would you like to see the engine room? That seems to me completely unsafe. You know, He was hitting on her. No, but you don't know that woman. Would you like to see the engine room while we're in deep space? She's an attractive woman. He's an attractive man. He's really? like, you know, why don't you come? Yeah, he has this whole bearded thing going on. And he's like, well, why don't we go to the engine room and quote unquote talk? Maybe have some drinks, you know. There are other people in the engine room. <laughs> what you're offering. He might be room. into that. I don't know. It's the future. I mean, you're right. It's very difficult to sort of... When you are reading all of Images number ones, it's very hard to get away from the sense that this is very, very familiar. However, I mean, you said this, and I absolutely agree with you. Southern Cross number one is a much stronger debut than Roche Limit number one. It's In Roche Limit, we had problems trying to figure out what was happening and trying to sort of... Come up with a reason to care about and, this woman's quest. And again, Alex I, is a lot more now, sympathetic. I said it before and I'll say it again in one of our following reviews. Not knowing exactly what's happening is not a problem as long as I think that's what the author intends. Like, I'm keeping you in the dark. With right. Roche Limit, it was, this is what happens. And I'm like, no, I don't know what happens. You're trying to explain it to me and you fail. Mm-hmm. With something well, Roche like, Limit also got very caught up in the world building, which Clunan doesn't do. Yeah, it's a character piece for yeah. me. There is something going on in the engine room and the gravity engine. You, yeah. There is sort of like this subtext of something's happening and it might have also been involved with her sister's death. You know, something weird is going on. But you don't get the info dump of like, so there's this colony and all of these things are weird and this thing is also weird and there are all of these weird things happening simultaneously and you have to sort of encompass all of it before you get to the point where the story actually starts. Now, the reason I mentioned Lee Lawrence specifically as a colorist is because mm-hmm. unless we say otherwise, it's always Jody Belair. <laughs> you know, if we don't say Welcome the name of to the Belair co- watch. Yeah, unless we say it's 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 not Jody Belair, you can assume it's Jody Belair. The Belair which project. But this is very if I wasn't told otherwise, I would think it's a very Jody Belair comics because you have this mm. dominant color over the, you know, the flat and it's very here it's very much pink and purple. Mm-hmm. And she became such a dominant force in coloring that everybody's aping her. You well, could do al- worse. Almost everybody. You know, yeah, you-, but you, you can do worse, but I don't like it when one artist sets the tone because it's like, it's like when Jim Lee set the tone for the whole of this universe. Well, that depends on who's setting the tone. If everybody no, started no. drawing like Frank Whiteley, well, no, you but, might be into that. Well, I might be into that, but A, even I would be bored by it at a certain point. And B, yeah. most people can't. You know, people can ape. Uh, Jody Belair coloring style. Right. Most artists, and when I say most, I mean just about everybody, can't ape for a quite, you know. Not for lack of trying, uh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I was a little worried about this when it was announced because I had such an unenthusiastic reaction to Gotham Academy, which is the other book that she's working on as a writer. That one she's co-writing with Carl Kreschel. But I remember that my problem at the time was that 
the the setting did not lend itself to the story Clunan was trying to tell. And here it does. Yeah. Like, because there's this mystery going on, but because there's not a lot of emphasis on the tech, we get to see more of Alex herself, the, the protagonist and the people around her. So it is sort of... And again, you know, I think the alien comparison works here because it's a people on a primitive spaceship. Yeah. And most of them are not astronauts. It's not like a scientific exploration Star Trek thing. It's common folks. You know, it's drillers and yeah. passengers and doctors. Very relatable, very down to earth. I'm assuming that her time on the ship is only sort of an introductory thing. No, I think she's I, heading for the planet. I think the talk about the first arc was something happened to the ship en route. Oh, because it's named after the ship. Great. So, you know. okay, we'll see. I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I'm game. I'm coming back for more. Okay. Speaking of game, <sighs> okay. Uh, shall we do Howard? Or? Let's do Howard. Howard the Duck, Howard number the Duck. one, by Chip Zdarsky, writer. Joe Canonis on art. From Marvel Comics. Yeah. I wanted to like this a lot. Yes. I really did. My problem is that Zdarsky ended up doing the very last thing I thought he'd ever do. He played this comic totally and completely straight. There's no satire here. There's no commentary. The gags, if you can call them that, are entirely situational. Howard the Duck is a private investigator in the Marvel Universe. That is literally it. There are occasional jokes, right? The, the training montage, the the bit with uh, Spider-Man's flashlight, like the old The She-Hulk neighbor. That was weird. So there's sort of a, a connection here to Charles Soleil's recently canceled She-Hulk. They, yeah. They're in the story. Well, there are worse comics to pick up. I was reading it, and I could not shake the feeling that this is exactly the nightmare scenario Steve Gerber had. Like The idea that Howard was declawed, or I guess defeathered, in a corporate environment where self-parody just isn't on the agenda. I really wanted Howard to make fun of Marvel. That was the expectation, and it's not what happened. It's not a satirical comics. It's a comedy comic. It's it's more like Rocket Raccoon, or not Rocket Raccoon, Squirrel Girl. Hmm. It's it's just a light-hearted comic set within the Marvel Universe. Now, the main plot here is that, again, Howard the Duck is a private investigator. He has an office right below She-Hulk's office mm-hmm. for some reason. They established that at the end of uh, Soleil's <laughs> She-Hulk. She is renting her office space, and then uh, Howard gets brought in as another tenant, basically. And as such comics go, it starts by meeting a new friend, mm-hmm. who will figure into the plot not much later. And he gets a case which involves Black Cat. Yeah. In her current evil incarnation from uh, Spider-Man. Came as a surprise to me. I don't well, know I've been reading from. it. So she, she basically is on a vengeance trip after what Doc Ock did to her. And she takes it out on Spider-Man. Okay. It's like, you humiliated me. I'm evil now. Fine. Great. Great. Okay. Uh, what surprised me is how deep in the Marvel Universe this thing is. It's not like an outside view of the Marvel Universe. Because, like you mentioned, it, it started off from She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. And then it uses the setup from Spider-Man right now. Yeah. And it ends with a guest appearance from the most unexpected, expected star that you could could think for such a book. Yeah. What I liked is that it's been set up as a detective story, but then the actual detectiving part is very low-key. And the actual story seems to go into a completely different, more Steve Gerbery place. Because your start Mm. is an odd cosmic gag. And then towards the end, something else is going on. And I think we're heading towards the direction that you wanted. It's not about a detective. Well, it's about a detective as far as he is a detective, but 
that's not the only plot. There is something bigger going right. on there. there. There is sort of like a, a 90 degree angle turn at some point. In the beginning. Where, no, towards the end, I'm referring. Yeah. Like, you, know, the, the, you think that he's going on this investigation to reclaim something that the black cat stole, and then it ends up being something else, but... Not enough for you? It's the tone of the book is not what I wanted. Because comedy books, like you said, I mean, we have Squirrel Girl, we have Rocket Raccoon, we have these books that are taking a lighter tone, and I am grateful that they're there. But Howard the Duck specifically... You know, setting aside the fact that this is obviously not Gerber's book, Kinone's redesign of Howard is enough of a departure that he doesn't look like classic Howard. So you have no reason to expect that it would be along the same lines. Yeah. And on the one hand, that's to their credit. It's cartoonish, but it's also distinct. It is its own thing. I think think it is Gerber. It's not Howard the Duck's Gerber. It's Defender's Gerber. It's the, it's the guy who played within the rules of the universe while taking them slightly askew. Because Gerber has never been but all about that. could have done that with any character. You know, Howard the Duck specifically. But, and especially because it was Darsky. I was expecting something a little sharper. Something with a bit more bite to it. Well, you have this really weird moment where what happens to Howard happens and then like Spider-Man sort of collapses and starts crying about Uncle Ben. <laughs> Great. Do you know what that reminded me of? Have you seen that video on YouTube of like a guy dressed in a Spider-Man costume is at a grocery store, picks up a box of rice, falls to his knees, start crying, and says the box of rice is called Uncle Ben's. Yes, I assume it's a joke. That's a joke. Probably a joke, but it's like it's a very unclear joke. Like, what are really? you laughing? I, 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 you know, it's like Uncle Ben. Oh no, Uncle he's, Ben. He's laughing at the tragedy, uh, the overexposed tragedy, which is Isn't something that, that Garber of... did. Yeah, but in a very... I mean, this is basically like a one-panel gag. This is not the tone of the book. It sort of comes out of nowhere. By contrast, what would I compare this to in terms of look at how something successfully works would be Spider-Man and the X-Men. Because whenever Kalan goes on like one of those rants about, look how absurd this situation is, you get the feeling that there is sort of like a, a commentary as... What are we dealing with Stegron now? Why Why Savage Land? Why? What do I, we need it for? See, I, I agree with you that they're very much alike, but I think they both work. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're alike. I'm saying that Kalan does it right, and Zdarsky... I, I think they both do it right. I, because I, I actually laughed when Spider-Man did uh, shine the light from my belt on you, and it's like, I should do it more. I'm like, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's a funny gag. When he's looking for the black cat, and, he, right, and his neighbor is like... Well, yes, she's she right looked, next door. Yeah, she looks How do you street. know? Well, not many supermodel-esque women with long white hair hang around here. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Why and not? Then, and then, like, you know, she's, she's very visible. His big elaborate plan to break into the black cat's lair is basically like throw a piece at her dog. And he's like, <laughs> like <laughs> pizza duck. And why are we wearing chef hats? It's like, so you see, you're, there you're is... thinking about it and laughing. No, but. For a different reason than I wanted to. The humor here, like I said, it's absurd. Situational. Because they're doing this specific thing, there's some comedy in it, but it's not like I really was hoping because it's Howard the Duck, I wanted it to be a bit more of a parody or a satire on what Marvel is doing right now. You know how when we reviewed the first issue of Powers, the, the Powers relaunch, yeah. and there's that double page spread where like a woman is standing in the middle of the police station screaming, how can it be a secret war if everybody knows about it? That's the sort of thing I was hoping Howard would do because he's perfectly positioned 
within the Marvel universe as it currently stands. And he actually says this. He's like, I'm from the nexus of all realities. I'm from another world. I don't really know how any of these things work. He would have been in the perfect position to sort of comment on the things that Marvel are doing uh, see, now. And nobody's doing that. We don't have what the anymore. I'm, I'm enjoying this comic as it is, but I think you should stay because if I'm reading this right, this is where he's heading because... Like you said, the final gag with Spider-Man was this, was what is this character now? A melodramatic, over-crying But thing. how is that any different? And, yeah. and again, towards the end of the issue, the you're here for some cosmic reason, which I will explain in the monologue. That's a very Gerberish thing, which his characters were always not self-aware, but mildly aware of. This is the strange, dramatic thing that's going on, which is part of the comic. Yeah, but... My problem here is that you could apply that to anything that Gerber did. Why does it have to be Howard the Duck? You know what I mean? Because like he if, was if in If you that are going movie. with that icon, well, <laughs> yeah. the movie is actually referenced here, which is why yeah. I said, like, you know, Marvel knows... No, 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 a different movie. Yeah, but, well, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, oh, you were in that movie. Well, and that, now is it Donald? About... Is it Scrooge or whatever? It's like, no, oh, it's wait, Howard. I don't think about it. It's brilliant, because the guest appearance in the end of the issue is a mirror for his own yeah. guest you know, I never thought. Of, I did thought about a, it. That was a, that's a brilliant gag. It's not a gag. It is a gag. How is it a gag? The fact that this guy appears exactly like he appeared in the end of Guardians. He, it's a parallel. It's not yeah. inherently funny in itself. For me, it's funny. I don't know. I, well, this is the thing about humor, right? I mean, humor is incro- possibly the most subjective form. A joke that makes one person laugh does not make another person laugh, and. Yeah, I did. guess for me it was just an issue of like having known Starsky from Sex Criminals where his sense of humor is a bit more vicious and a bit more pointed. I kept thinking that if he was going to do Howard the Duck, it was going to be something where it'd be like Ugh. universal collapses. What are you talking? You know, like some kind of joke on that or there really, really, really needed to be a pizza gag here. Something like two pizzas coming together and the toppings falling off. Like, something like that. You know, th- that's what I was hoping for. Because Marvel needs that sort of self-reflective humor that shows that they don't take themselves too seriously. I mean, really, would this not have been so much better if Howard had, like, gone to a pizza store and be like, you want the two pizzas on top of each other? Which toppings do you want to keep on? Or which kind that's of, a you bit, know. That's a bit too inward-looking because... Out but of the that's pe- what they need. Well, no, because that, that's a, because if most comic books are for several tens of thousands of people, pizza gag, people who actually knew the pizza meme and remember okay, it, so I mean, that's, that's a joke for five people on the internet, but literally. That's, speci- that's, like, a specific example, but that was, like, the tone that I was looking for. Or something like, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man's <laughs> body... Something like that, you know, the, the sort of, what are all these spiders doing here? I, I think, I think this works better because for me, what you're describing is almost too obvious on its own because superhero parodies have always played these cheap gags. Not in Marvel though. Not now. Well, not since, wait, what? What the? I mean, ever since they were picked up by Disney, and this is a problem for Disney too. Disney has some poo face seriousness. No, it's, it's that they have this sort of basic insecurity that prevents them from being able to be like, yeah, oh, I guess you got us, you know, no big. We're still making billions of dollars on a daily basis. So, you know, I guess you, you sort of got us with that joke. It really bothers them when people parody them. And I feel like Marvel needs to have at least one book that is openly mocking them. Not in a vicious way, but sort of like, you know, look at how ridiculous this thing can be. Because that's part of the fun. And 
I did not know what Zdarsky was planning for this book, but this was like the, the very last thing that I would have expected for him would be to play it as just sort of like a general comedy. Yeah, and the montage gag was overworked. That really was. Yeah, I mean... But, okay, the art's great. The art is fantastic. Yes. Joe Quinones, uh, familiar to me mostly from the Black Canary Zatanna Bloodspell graphic mm-hmm. novel, whatever it was called. This is even better. Yeah. This is more cartoonish, more flowing. I really like his Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, he should draw Spider-Man. Quinones manages to... This was always the challenge with Howard, right? On the one hand, to make him appear like a cartoon character... Right, like something out of DuckTales. But on the other hand, when he is standing next to Tara or Spider-Man, he doesn't look incongruous. He looks like he fits in, despite the fact that he doesn't, actually. Especially with the guest star at the end of the issue. You know, you put them side by side, and it's like, these characters do coexist in the same world. And that's okay. It's just not what I was looking for. Okay, and our last number one issue for today is, again, from Image... The Surface, number one, written by Alice Scott with art by Langdon Foss. That has been long expected by both of us because mm-hmm. we're both caught fans from Zero and Secret Avengers. Mm-hmm. And with all my expectations, I was still blown away. Mm-hmm. I think this is the best number one we had throughout this year. So far. And part of it is very personal because there's a whole bunch of stuff here that's aimed at Tom Shapira. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, the story, it's semi-futuristic America. Uh, not sure what, when exactly in the future. There have been some changes. People talking in the background about the, the Free State Union. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's supposed to be like David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which, you know, America, Canada, mm-hmm. and Mexico, or if three states from the Union, which are now a thing for themselves. I wouldn't Whatever. be surprised if that reference yeah, it, was deliberate. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll get to that. And the son of the president is leading a small group of friends to Tanzania in search of something called the surface, which is a place where you can become whatever you wish to be if it exists. And also his father, the president, is looking for him through his uh, security uh, forces. And we have some strange interludes throughout the issue with the writer being interviewed by somebody for some sort of magazine. And the writer is probably Ellis Scott, and maybe not. He has a name, but I'm yeah. not sure what he's supposed to represent. There's also another narrator who is not the writer. Yeah, at least two other narrators, I think. You know, yeah. The one in the black boxes and the one in the white boxes. Right. Okay, so one thing that I liked about it, if most first issues are snacked, like this is the first taste, come back for the trade and have it, this is a meal. It took me like 20 minutes to read this. And then I had to read it again. Not because I didn't understand what's going on, because I wanted to do it again. It's a heavy book. And the other thing that I like is it's a science fiction book not made of stock ideas of science fiction. Like again, like most other image books, because here the science fiction is not uh, we're going to the stars. This is part roadside picnic because we have the people going to the strange location, which is unknown and might change their life. It's part Cory Doctorow because we have the commentary about personal stakes and information wants to be free or not and the role of government within that. It's part David Forster Wallace because we have the self-aware writer talking about his own failures. And it's part, and it's part, and it's part Warren Ellis. Spider Jerusalem is name checked. Well, yeah, it's, it's a fun gag, but it's part Warren Ellis. It's transmetropolitan. I mean, there's a big influence of transmetropolitan here when you look at how 
the world is designed, right? This whole, the ubiquity of information reminded yeah. me of, you remember in Transmetropolis, you had like those information Shit. bombs. Information, that, information, information. Yeah. So, uh, and again, these are all things that I like. Aside from Curry Doctor, which I neutral towards. And I like the fact that it goes into this direction. Uh, also, you know, we, we didn't mention Morrison. I don't know. I if it's knew a, it. I, I knew it was coming. I was waiting for you to bring it up. They mentioned I Bohem. Knew it. And they mentioned Bohem. And, you know, Morrison has the, you know, Morrison has his claws all over Bohem in comics. When somebody mentions Bohem in comics, I immediately think My Morrison. notes on this issue read, Morrisonian, wait for Tom to bring it up. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I knew, no, okay. you're right. First of all, I mean, you are right. It is Morrisonian. There's a lot of And it's also from. Ellison, and it's also yeah. Doctor, and it's, and it's a lot of things, and yet it's also caught. That is where I we disagree. disagree. Okay. That is specifically the point that we disagree. Okay, shoot. So, this issue really felt meandering to me. Because, yes, the setting is potentially interesting. There's all this talk about holograms and shaping reality and maybe the universe is a hologram. This is the problem. I've been striking out a lot with image comics in those specific situations where you feel at some point like you're sitting through a lecture. The interruption of all these text pieces talking about the universe is a hologram. And if you cut it in two, you have identical holograms. And maybe if you go to this surface, whatever it is, if is it a place, you will be in a place where you can shape reality if it's really reality or not really reality. And, you know, all of these things going on and... It feels very disconnected, but the larger problem that I have is when you look at Zero as a comparative work that Cut is producing, Zero also has all of these new forms of technology and, yeah. and everything that comes as a result. And you have also this significant time shift, like when the protagonist of Zero is an old man facing off against his would-be killer. He's in a future scenario that has clearly been... Like, something strange is going Something on. has happened, And right? we don't know yet, you know, years. Exactly. Like, even 20 issues in, we don't know quite what's happened yet, but it's sort of, it's building towards that. Here, I feel like the influence of Morrison and the influence of Ellis, because again, you can't get away from it. When you get to the last page of this issue, the surface number one, I defy you to say that it's not like drawn directly from Transmetropolitan, that sense of like this schizophrenic technology and all of these bizarre shapes sort of slammed together. But, exactly like the city, you know, Spider Jerusalem City. Spider Jerusalem, like I said, he is, his name is explicitly mentioned in this comic, right? This is sort of communicating with a lot of work that Morrison has done and a lot of work that Ellis has done. And I feel like Coat doesn't come across here because you know, what are the hallmarks of Coates' science fiction writing? Whether it's Secret Avengers or whether it's Zero, when you look at it, it's like, yes, there are these weird ideas, right? This weird technology, this weird science that comes in. But you never lose sight. I mean, you know, there's a reason that people love Modoc in Secret Avengers, right? The way that he writes Modoc, Or the way that he writes Edward and Roman in, uh, in Zero. Zero. As very human characters, as characters that like, for all that they are in this bizarre situation, Edward's whole backstory with like, you know, his, his sort of love interest and the teleportation thing and the identity of the person that he's working against, all of these personal components 
factor into the work. Like that is the lens through which you look at all these bizarre technologies. And here is that you start from the point of view of a character who is already immersed in this world. They have like these long, long, long dialogues about did you know, I mean, when you think about it, the atom in your eye could have come from a different star than the atom in your chest. And, I, I, and it's I, like, like they're discussing all of these very philosophical and, and very, like, you know, pseudo-scientific ideas and are constantly being interrupted by these text pieces, which I don't even know what's going on over there. And then it's like, well, yes, but while you're having all these discussions, so Mark is the son of a control freak psychotic president and he, his boyfriend, and their female friend are, they're going on this trip. You know, it's, it's very hard to parse, like, what's going on here I, I don't, from a plot point of view. I because think, well, ideas, 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 ideas. No, no, no. Why? They're going on a trip to this place. And again, I think this is very much roadside picnic, which most people, I assume, would know from the right. film Stalker. Or from the, you know, from the original work. But yeah. yeah, well, in the West, most people, I think, know the movie more. Right, okay. And i thinking back to Stalker, which I really liked as a movie. That was also just people mostly talking while on the trip. And this is also what we have here. And I really like these ideas. And I like that the characters spend most of their time talking about these ideas. But whenever they actually have the emotional interaction with few lines, it makes me feel deep. The, the love between Mark and his boyfriend, I feel it. I actually feel it in from I didn't. from a very few from very few lines. See, that's exactly so. I don't know. I mean, because just, I'm just reading the, it. Just the look that he has, you know, in the uh, no, the, the end art. Of- the art. The art is one thing. What I mean is like when they are lying together in the tent and talking about atoms and the universe as a hologram and maybe it's this and maybe it's that. It's like you're talking about these <sighs> concepts. You're thinking them through as you're discussing them. But how is that relevant to you? You know, me, like, the reader what is, or me, the character? No, the characters, I mean. Like, when Mark and Gomez are talking about the universe is a hologram, and if you yeah. cut it in two, then you have two identical... It's like, what is the connection between what you're talking about and who you are? Because Mark is... The first thing we find out about him is, you know, his father treats hackers as terrorists and, yeah. and pedophiles. The like, post al you know, He, he yeah. explicitly spells it out. You know, these hackers... And his son is a hacker. Yes. So obviously there's all of this going on and his son can tell the difference between like a fake version of his father and the real version. And he is the one who instigates this trip and without believing in it. Like, what is it that it's really hard for me to sort of grasp? What relevance does his belief or lack of belief in the surface have to do with the relationship between him and his friends? And the purpose of this journey. Like, I don't think that Code ever actually explained, you know, they are going to this surface for what purpose? Because Just to see? To or, see if it exists. And if it does exist, what that, like, the, there, there's no, they're engaging with all of these, like, really yeah. abstract philosophical concepts. I didn't understand, I, like, why? I don't, because I, you don't need to know from the get-go. Like, invisible. I, I think like you do. No, because, like, invisible. So you, had, you had all these ideas in the first issue, and people saying, Barbalith, and, you know, the universe is crossing. Again, invisible. Yeah. more so. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know. But Invisibles is not Morrison's most accessible work either. I mean, I don't think that comparison exce- is sort of... It's it, not his most accessible, but it's, it, it's his most quintessential, I think. If you know, if you want, isn't that the filth? Well, 
In my opinion, yes, because I'm a huge filth fan. You know, for me, right. the filth is the most no, but I mean, like, critically speaking, that's the thing. Like, critically speaking, speaking when people talk the, about like the work that exemplifies Morrison, they usually point to the filth. Really, and the filth is a book that I can't read. Pe- people, for me, usually point to Invisibles as you know Morrison Prime. Mm. I, I We're talking to different people. <laughs> I, I guess so. No, because what I what I usually hear from the critical discourse around me is that the Invisibles had too many similarities to Doom Patrol in terms of both. When they came out, and also like no, it came out with Justice League, not with Doom Patrol. The Invisibles came out with Justice League, but adjacent to the Doom Patrol. No, no, Doom I Patrol. Think so. I think Doom Patrol, Doom Patrol was, was late, early nineties. Well, well, yeah, Doom Patrol was either over or almost over by the time Invisible started. I'm pretty right. sure about that. No, no, I'm not saying he wasn't <laughs> producing them at the same time, but there's a lot of similarity, particularly towards the like Doom Patrol started out relatively coherent. <laughs> And then he went into the whole, like, you know, God's anti-shadow, magic, universal, uh, anyway, I, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, and that I, very much continues in the, in the Invisible okay, now, re- And the filth is something else. The filth is something great. But, you know, yeah. you read my book if you want to. <laughs> sure. But, I, but that's the thing. Like, the comparison to Morrison is apt because Coat, I feel, has the capacity to engage with these concepts. But in every other book that he's done so far, I feel like he's always managed to frame the exploration of these ideas through the lenses of some action genre piece. Not even an action genre piece, well, but in the fact that, I mean, look, because Zero both, could have been any genre. Z- Zero did not have to be a spy genre. Well, I think it, it could have been anything. And the important thing no, would have been that it's important it was, to Zero that, you know, it's, well, at the first year at least, one mission per issue. And it's supposed to be a mission. Yeah, but then, I mean, it mutated into something else well, altogether. Well, yeah, but it had to start start you on this direction because every issue for, for the first year of Zero had to be self-contained yeah. in order to pack up all these ideas and tell the reader, well, it doesn't matter that this issue jumps to a different time frame and, sh- and shows you a completely different, you know, ending. That might be it, though. That might be and, precisely that and, the and, difficulty that I'm having And here. Secret Avengers is basically... The comedy superhero version of Zero, yeah. in which well, it's I, don't, an I don't. I mean, Secret Avengers. You have to take that with a grain of salt to begin with, because it's a company property. To the except, I mean, the Secret Avengers is very clearly a coat book. Yeah, but it's a coat book that and you Cot, know, and Cot was always honest about. Well, I'm doing property comics in order to yeah. support my personal work, but and I mean, he and he has this thing here. Yes, but when you compare when, this when to the writer, Zero, and when the writer is interviewed and saying, "Well, yeah, I could have stayed there, but I sort of had to do my own thing." That's caught talking to us about himself. That's a very, that's the David Foster Wallace part. Right. And again, maybe it's because a lot I of like, intertextuality here. I think that might that might be part of the problem. You're not a big fan of intertextuality. I love intertextuality when it serves a purpose. Here I feel like we have just cited half a dozen sources without even mentioning Don DeLillo. Oh. I'm not a fan of Don DeLillo. I'd rather have Don DeLuise. Uh <laughs> No, cuz like Don DeLillo. I mean, come on. <coughs> Quoting Cosmopolitan on the last Cosmo- page. Cosmopolis. That's Cosmopolitan. <laughs> I'd rather have Cosmopolitan. Never mind. If, <laughs> if I had to make a choice between them, I'd choose Cosmopolitan. Yeah, it's like we've mentioned all of these sources for this issue. These inferences are deliberate, right? Yes. You don't throw Spider Jerusalem's name into a text and not know what you're doing. I know that Quote is drawing on these parallels deliberately but i feel like that's diluting his voice because i got a much stronger sense of how he writes and and how he i honestly think that zero is quoted as his best at his best much more than this but, issue yeah well uh, zero is very good but 
Cop is always quoting, you know, every issue of Zero, you have the back. Sure. But and, and over that, you know, the, the bomb at Secret Avengers is a riff on, right. uh, what was that movie's name? Dark Star. Yes. The depressed bomb. <laughs> I, I, I really like that movie and I like that comic. And the fact that Black Widow diffuses him by offering him gelato is like, have yeah. you ever had gelato? No, then why are you going to kill yourself before you have gelato? So, Cop is always quoting and intertextuality. That's not a verb. I cannot verb intertextuality. <laughs> And, Intertextualityism. And I think he's doing it here. It's a pure cut. It's cut without any genre trapping, any attempt at doing straightforward action story, which is what he'd done up until now. Maybe it's too much, but for me, it's the exact right amount of things that I love. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I like all the side texts. I like that the narrator is playing with us, where, you know, from for the strangest lines... In the middle of the book, you have this dot, and then the note from the editor, that's a hint. Or, like, mid-conversation, you get these text pieces. Yes. I mean, look, Roche Limit had text pieces, too, but they were diegetic text pieces. Like, they were text pieces that were set in the world. Like, I don't know... Who's talking here? Who is speaking in these text pieces? That's part of the mystery. The thing with Roche Limit, I was bored here. I'm intrigued. Every single question that this comic brings up I'm intrigued now what questions would you say would motivate you to continue reading like uh, what is the surface and what's the relation between the idea of the surface as they mentioned in the back quote from Don Delillo you know the separation between I remember this quote um, uh, the surface is that which separates yeah, a wait. surface separates inside from out and yeah. belongs no less to one than the other so again I'm kind of intrigued as what he's doing here because Parts of this comics, and I'm trying... This is something that I should probably write. I should probably express this in writing, you know, thinking it through instead of just mm. throwing it here. Uh, because Cot is doing something here with the metaphor of limits and crossing over, mm-hmm. I think. And I just wish that... I agree with you. Like, I can see that that's what he's doing. I just wish that that was anchored more in terms of some kind of credible in-story rationality because it bothers me that I don't know what Mark's goal is. To find the surface if it exists, yes, but for what purpose? I mean, if he were like a scientist or something and he was going well, for exploration, I'd be like, okay, I can well, understand the motivation. You're not a believer. Here's a chance for you to know if there's a God. Because they're basically, they're, they're saying, you know, you're not a believer. They're not even saying in what you believe in. Yeah, but why, if he's not a believer, what is the purpose of would it, would, treating it, the surface as if it is divine? You know what I mean? Like, if he goes and he finds the divine and he becomes, like, converted to believe in the, in the surface. And the surface changes him. Okay. And he, don't forget, this is a, this why? is a, this is a young person in war with his father who is the president of the United States. Right. The idea of being changed, of crossing over and coming back a different, better person, able to wage this war. See, that's what I don't buy. That is exactly what I don't buy, because I don't feel like Mark believes himself to be insufficient. He has this whole discussion with yeah. Gomez and Nasia in the beginning, where he's like, oh, that's not my father, and you know, he's this, and he's out there. Like, he, he comes across as very confident. So I don't... Yeah, like, but is he looking there, for power? There, there, is he looking for for a weapon against his father? Like he doesn't what know what stakes? he's looking. I think it's a good example of a young person 
making a show of confidence of, yeah, I know everything. Listen to me talking about all these smart things that I read in all these smart books. Mm. And it covers insecurity, which we can see in the scene with him in the tent where he can't hide behind all these big words and he has to actually talk to his boyfriend. Yeah, but then they get interrupted by the text piece anyway, yeah. so they're not saying well, anything. Well, but I, that's what I got from it. And I don't know. I, I, was, I wish it had been, I wish it had been executed. I, I think it's executed beautiful in its, mm-hmm. in clarity and clearly in its beautifulness. Okay. That's stupid. I shouldn't have Are said you coming that. back for more? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Definitely. De- without, like mm-hmm. I told you, for me, up until now, this is the best number one issue of the year. No contest. I, hmm, I might come back for the trade. And now you're thinking back about material. And you wonder if you want to read that. No, I mean, yeah. I don't... Listen, nobody bats a million, right? I mean, everybody is going to flop for me one, at one point or another. It doesn't change my opinion of Code as a writer. I think that this particular comic might not be the best expression of his creativity. But what happens with the material, we'll see. Okay. And we'll end, as usual, with a trade review. And, well, it's well, not a trade... It's an arc review. Yeah, it's an arc review because the first... Well, the first... Bodies by Cy Spurrier and a whole bunch of people <laughs> uh, has just finished. The trade yes. will be out in two months' time, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's an eight-issue miniseries. Yes, from Vertigo, with Cy Spurrier again as a writer, and with <clears throat> Dean Ormston, Phil Winslade, and Megan Hetrick, and Tula Lotte as yes. artists. And the reason that we have four artists is not because of pacing issues mm-hmm. and people getting lost along the way. It's a... Very interesting. High concept. Yes. It's a very interesting high concept. It's a mystery in four timelines concurrently. In four four time periods. Yeah, four time periods. Okay. Not timelines. In the 1890s, Victorian England, Jack the Ripper days, a body is found with a strange marking on it. Mm -hmm. In the 1940s, during World War II, in London, England, a body is found with strange markings on it. Mm-hmm. In 2014, in modern-day London, a body is found with strange markings on it. In 2050, in a world which seemed to have watched, I don't know... Some kind of post-apocalyptic... Not, not apocalyptic, London. it's like everybody's been through... Uh, what was that movie's name with the guy who doesn't have a memory? Total Recall? No, the guy who loses his short-term memory. Memento? Yeah. Uh. Everybody has been mementotized. <laughs> I'm inventing a lot of strange bad words today. Apologize. In a post, post-mementotization world, uh, mm-hmm. a body has been found with strange markings on it. Yes. Dot, dot, dot. That's a very high concept. It's a brilliant concept. I mean, you have one writer telling an interconnected story across four time periods with four detectives investigating what seems to be the same murder. Yeah. And it's not a unique idea because you, you think about it Isn't and you immediately, it? well, you, I immediately fall back to Cloud Atlas and well, something, and, or something like Intolerance. The Cloud idea, Atlas had some of that in the sense, but it wasn't the same story. And, or, no, not the same story, but the idea of time periods working in different, different stories within the same story related to one another is in ways which you cannot quite understand up until the end of it. Right. Or uh, well, what, what's... Uh, no, no. That, not not that's The right. Hours, the other book by the same author, Wild Berries. Oh, you're talking about Wild, Michael Cunningham. Yeah. Wild Grass. Michael Cunningham didn't write Cloud Atlas, so... That was no, 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 no. I'm saying the other book by the guy who did The Hours. Oh. Uh, Wild Grass, I think. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, which was three stories in three different periods. Yeah. And there were minor influences between one to the other. 
Now, the... well, what's different in this particular scenario is that supposedly it's the same body yeah. across the entire uh, run, which which is like you know that added little uh, twist. Cy Spurrier is definitely a writer. writer. He's a very intriguing writer. He has very good and very interesting concepts. And I feel like nine times out of ten, he manages to bring those concepts through very clearly and, you know, in a very coherent way. And you get that thrill of, like, encountering the weird without going too far off. In this particular scenario, though, I think um, part five or six... Loses its way. Something happens. It's like, when you get to the explanation... um, hmm. quite a challenge trying to contextualize it. I Wait, mean, without, without spoiling everything? Well, I don't want to... Well, first let me make sense of it, then I'll spoil it. <laughs> no, um, basically, okay, let's talk about I what think, Spur- I think, Spurrier does well. Okay, I think... No, I want to speak about what he does unwell. Okay. Regarding the closure of the series. I think the problem is the explanation, as far as I can see, as far as I could think about it, has nothing to do with the larger themes throughout the series. It's mm-hmm. like the mystery. He seems to think that he's tying it together to his idea of England throughout the ages. That's one yeah. of his major themes: England and immigration, specifically throughout the ages. Yes, but it doesn't seem to tie together. Although, especially because the last story doesn't seem to deal with it at, towards its end. Well, that's the thing that I didn't understand. Because like, the four, uh, out the of four the detectives four... are connected in the sense that. They're all outsiders. Not just that they're all outsiders, but that they are all living sort of double lives. Not exactly double lives, but like there's a part of themselves that they are hiding. Like, for example, the Victorian detective is a homosexual. Yes. And this is at a time when homosexuality is criminalized, so he is very much sort of locking a part of himself away. The 1940s detective is... A, he's a Jew. He's a Jew. He is... And B, he worked for the mob. He works for the mob and he has this backstory with his niece that is, you know, also it's something that he's working to hide and suppress. Yeah. And the modern day detective. The modern day detective is a. She's a Muslim. She's a Muslim woman, but she is also having a relationship with one of her coworkers, which is very much, that's also something that she is trying to sort of force well, back. Now, for me, what was important about these three is that they're all, not just the other, they're the reviled other. It's the, yes. in their period, this is the big, well, I guess the reviled other in the 1940s would have been if he's actually... well, he German. Is, well, he's not German. He's Polish. It's close enough. Close enough for the purpose Because people of mock Americans. him both for being Jewish and for being from these countries. Yes. So oh, it works. Mm. But then in the future setting... Well, she's referred to... The, the protagonist of the future setting is referred to as a hermaphrodite. I, Does she? When I she, don't actually remember that. There's a point in the story in which the detectives are starting to see momentary visions of each other. Yes. And when the Victorian detective sees the future version, he refers to her from that point onward when he goes to see the uh, oh, the medium. Right. He refers to her as a hermaphrodite. Now, the art doesn't really put this across. And in fact, later on, she's referred to as like the daughter of yeah. the woman, right? The mother. Maybe he's just misunderstanding. He's a guy from the yeah. 1890s looking at the future. What so does he know? So it's not... But like, if she is, that would also be sort of the dual nature that the other detectives share. And, well, the but, whole future storyline didn't work for me at yeah. all. The other three storylines, I got what they're doing. 
separately and together and I almost I thought I understood what was happening in the future. I thought it was um like that there was something that was affecting short term memory for, yeah, like everybody. it was a, it was a world of amnesiacs, which to be fair in typical apocalyptic scenarios, you don't see that very often no that's a great idea like a world without memory, yes, and you know the way that she's constantly reminding herself there was i think a short science fiction story about that I don't remember the name about. People losing their memories all the time and how society collapses. Right. But, you know, if I can't even remember the name of the story, it's probably... <laughs> Maybe your memory of that <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's probably not a recurring idea. But again, like, that's Spurrier, right? The concepts are good, and in most of the cases it comes across. But <sighs> that ending put me in the mind of Midas Flesh is what happens. It's like you get to a point in the story where you're like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. What did you just say? The cosmic ratcon is upon us. What? That's who? What? And, and you're right that the, the denouement has nothing, as far as I could tell, had nothing to do with their personal stories. And it's all, it's one of those things that make me feel like I want to read it again in order to understand. Yeah. But I don't really want to read it again because I wasn't enjoying the latter parts of it enough as a story on itself. I I, again, I, I'll, I'll mention Infinite Jest again uh, by David Foster Wallace, my favorite book ever, mm-hmm. which I should probably read again because it's been a long, long time. This is the kind of story where towards the end of it, you're not really sure what's happened because it's obscure, obscure as hell intentionally, but you're enjoying the trip itself so much that by the time it's over, you want to read it again in order to understand, and then you're sort of starting to, to get yeah. it. And here, it's like the trip is entertaining... Halfway through, and then towards the end, you're like, I, I, yeah. I, I don't really want to read it again. It's like as soon as this, I was... don't want to make the effort to under. You haven't made it worth my while yeah. to make the effort to understand your grand design. That's what was so frustrating because up until that point, I really enjoyed all of the characters, even the future protagonist. Who you know, because she's in this scenario, it's a little harder to get who she is. But even her, like, I, I was enjoying them, and then. As soon as the story shifts from establishing their characters to explaining what the hell is going on, I feel like the explanation that Spurrier provides is sort of like, eh. And I had, this was exactly the same reaction that I had to the conclusion of his run on X-Men Legacy. When he resolves the whole thing with Legion, I was like, like, I understand what you did, sort of, and I kind of understand, like, why you did it, but there had to have been a better way to close that down, because it was going so well up until that point, and then he asks you, this This happened to him with a lot of his 2000 AD work, too. I don't know if you've read any of that. I have never read I it. I mean, there was a lot of... What, what did he do? Like, dread he, stuff? No, not dread. He did a couple of, you know, like, self-contained ah, okay. uh, stories that ran for a couple of progs, and I, like, I remember reading them at the time and being like, you had me. And then towards the end, he, whenever he gets to that point where he says, now I'm going to explain to you what's going on, you're hooked up until that moment. And then like he gives you the answer and you're like, I'm not entirely sure that I buy that. Like I, I don't know how I feel about it. And I, I, um, don't, I don't... I wish he'd done it better. If it's, if it's only been the ending, I would have been okay with it because, like, you mentioned the... Well, it's, a, it's the point where the road to the ending becomes clear. Yeah, you mentioned Midas Flesh, which we both didn't appreciate the ending yeah. that much. I liked it a bit more, but it was problematic. Yeah, exactly. But the road itself was so great that I didn't yeah. care. 
Here, the road was only halfway great. See, I disagree. And, with that. and not even halfway great, halfway good, as far as I'm concerned. I disagreed with that because what I enjoyed here, the trick that he plays is that you have these four characters. And as you're going through the stories, it becomes clear that they are connected not just in terms of the plot, but also in terms of how they're characterized. Like, you know, the, when you realize the things that they have in common, and how that's guiding them. I thought, you know, that was actually pretty clever. Like, these are four very distinct characters and, and well fleshed out, given that it's yeah. only eight now, issues. I like the fact that it's done in seven pages interludes, because it means if you're tired of one scene, it's like, this doesn't work for me for this issue, you know, in a few pages, yeah. you, you turn on to the next part, and maybe you like it more. And the fact that it's not rigid, like, every issue starts, you know... Not every issue goes on uh, 1890s, 1940s, 2015, mm-hmm. 2050. In fact, there are sequences where a character, like two characters yeah. interact. And it seems nonsensical until you realize they're actually redoing an interaction yes. that actually does make sense in a different timeline. Okay. So it is sort of, you know, it's those moments of linking up and synchronicity that keep you going forward because like what is going on here yeah and the problem the, is that the answer doesn't yeah. satisfy now the art is for most part good uh, in all of the parts you know dean ormston's great mm-hmm. winsley great hetrick great i'm having a problem with tula lotte and it's the same problem i had with her work in supreme blue rose mm. what little of it that i've read in that she's one of those artists who's very heavy on the mood and these need clear storytelling in order to compensate for their moodiness. Yeah. And here it's unclear. She gets the most confusing storyline of them all. Yeah. And because her, her art is very much feeling rather than showing, I ended up not actually understanding, wait, did they chase the ball? The ball, yeah. the ball oh. is bouncing? Does yeah. it? Really? She and Hetrick maybe should have switched. Yeah, yeah. Hetrick would have done better with like, Imposing a bit more clarity on the future scenario. And Lotte could have done just as well with Shahara, the Muslim investigator. She, you know, th- that would have been okay. And the other problem for me, and I told you before we start recording, verisimilitude. Hmm. When you're doing a story set in different time periods, again, I'm thinking of Cloud Atlas. You know, hmm. you don't have much of choice about it. Research, research, research. I don't, I don't feel he did it here. I don't know. Maybe he did it. Maybe I'm an idiot. If he did it, it didn't work through because for me, the Victorian period, it doesn't feel like the Victorian period. It feels like the pop culture representation of the Victorian period. I'm and, okay with that though. And wait, but when a large chunk of your story is about England, specifically, it's about the notion of England and the change of England. I have to believe you're England. It's not just Why? a story. Because if the story- it's the notion of how England is represented. Not represented is. It's, it's a difference. It's the idea of England. Uh, no, no, no. I think it's about England as, as it is because it's a political book. It's a book about immigration. It's a book about accepting the difference. It's not a book about, it's not some, uh, Neil Gaiman-y, this is the idea of a story of England. It's a, it's an Ellen Moorish, this is England. And again, I'm talking about Ellen Moore because I've recently reread not reread. I recently read for the first time The From Hell Companion by him and Campbell, mm-hmm. which is all about the scripting of the book and about thinking through the book. And I re- I really like From Hell as a piece of historical fiction, as something... From Hell, for me, is the best sort of historical fiction. It's not just a story set in some period. It's a story about the period. Yeah. And when you finish it, I knew 
well, or at least I think I knew, what's it like in Victorian in, in England and what's the connection between that England and modern day England? What's the arc of history, as it were? Mm-hmm. Here, I don't know it. I don't know what's the connection between uh, 1890s England because it's just, you know, it's generic 1890s England. Yeah. And, and for some reason, the detective wears sunglasses all of the time, even during the night. Because, why? Because it's cool, not because it's connected to the period. And, you know, the 1940s detective, he's, he's Jewish, and we know it because he says fakakta all the time. And he wears a pinstripe suit, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm okay with taking liberties with the historical facts, or even, you know, like you said, relying on sort of a pop culture reconstruction and I'm okay of with the period. I'm okay with it in certain kinds of stories. I think that this story, what he's trying to present itself as... You can't do that. You can't do a story about England and then fail to represent England properly. See, I, I, I think that... And, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Science fairy is English and I'm not. I've never been to England. What I understood from the ending, and again, this could be a misreading on my part, and I do think that I will reread it soon because this could just be down to misinterpretation. My impression was that when you get to the resolution of what this body is and what it represents, it was more the way that England exists in popular imagination. In which case, the Whitechapel story in 1890 doesn't necessarily need to be historically accurate on the level of from hell. And I mean, when you think about it, Moore's reflection of England, even in something like V for Vendetta is much more grounded in the reality of, you know, Eng- uh, London as a city, right? As an accurate city, well, as something yeah, that not, does I'm exist. Not, I'm not expecting anybody or I'm not expecting anybody who's not Ellen Moore to do the level of research that Ellen Moore does because Ellen Moore is research insane, you know? Oh, yeah. If he does a... He- when he did Lost Girls, he did the research... <laughs> He got like, you know, get me some girls no. <laughs> and I need to like, no, but ju- if you were to do this, yeah. how would no, that no, feel? No, no, because he has this, yeah, he, he had this article in, I think the comic journal years and years ago about mm-hmm. writing for comics about when he wrote Swamp Thing. And he said, well, I had to write scenes in hell with Adrigan. And he actually sat down and thought, well, what would this creature from hell would be like? What would yeah. he move like? What would he think like? And most people don't do it. Most people are just automatic. Well, this is Adrigan. He was in this Jack Kirby comics. Here's what he will do because that was in that comic. Here's uh-huh. how London, England will look like because I saw it in all these movies. Here's the thing, though. I mean, you're bringing up Moore's research. I mean, specifically, yeah. when you talk about Adrigan, for example, in Swamp yeah. Thing, Moore's version of hell is very much based on a specific interpretation of hell. Yes. Right? It's not the Chinese hell. No, no, no. It's not like some other version. You know, he went with Judeo-Christian hell. Purgatory, heaven, all of that. That exists in his cosmology. And that's fine. In From Hell, From Hell purports to be historical fiction. Here, I think that the minute you have like a fantastic scenario, there was no way that he could do Whitechapel historically accurate, right? Like, you cannot feel that the version of England that Spurrier is presenting is authentic for the simple reason that, you know, you also have a future scenario in here, and then the ultimate revelation sort of hinges on you being able to accept that no. this is, quote like, it's unreal. But can you actually... The future scenario, it's very interesting. Can you buy it 
Can you buy the fact that after one year of this kind of lifestyle, not everything falls apart? Everything has fallen apart. Not to the level of that we see here. Like, I mean, everybody should be dead by now, I think. You know, what? one year after that. Because nobody ever took their medicine. Nobody goes to surgery. Everybody's Wait, dead. How many Dave. people do you actually see here, though, besides the protagonist? Well, the towards the end, you know, we have the you crowd know, scene. There's a, okay. Yeah, but then, like, is, who are the, those crowds are like the cultists? Who are oh, they? What? I, that whole cult see, angle was see, like... I, see, I, we don't know. Yeah, and so... Not knowing in the beginning is fine. Yeah. I really like the first issue. I would like the second issue. And yeah. like you said, five and six is when you start, like... You're not either. Either and, you're not really sure where you're going with it, or even worse, yeah. you know where you're going with it, and, and you, you have not, like it. and you have not communicated it to me properly. Because yeah. I'm not the genius, okay, but I'm not stupid. You, you know what? Hopefully, this right. Hmm? Did you read Ed Brubaker's Dead Enders? No. Okay, I should. He had this whole multi-dimensional worlds layered on top of each other. And this is Brubaker. You don't expect that from him. No, I don't. Different hopping between dimensions and cities. And, da, 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 da. and when you get to the end and like the explanation turns up and everything sort of like distills down to like the final act and the denouement and the explanation, it all makes perfect sense. Here I feel like you get the explanation as to what this murder, you know, what is this body? But... For example, what's the relationship between the body and this cult that keeps popping up? What's the deal with the cult? There's this cult that turns up in two of the time periods. Not all four. Only two of them. What are they? Who are they? They keep getting name-checked in both times. It's like, oh, we are from the Order of... And it's like, well, but who... Well, they, they they talk about it. They say that the cult is the people that misunderstood the connection. And they make it into something which is not... And I think that's... But what is that thing that they make it into? I think... Okay. (laughs) Because... that's Again, that's an interesting thing which I think should have given more space. The idea of somebody is given the divine revelation and just not getting it. You know... Maybe it's us. You know, we don't get what he's doing. Did this not remind you of The Wake? I have not not read The Wake. Oh. um, Uh, Let's see. I know what it's about. I know what it's about. I just have not read it. Well, because like The Wake, I I read it and... That's a very popular right now because the wake also had three time periods right and trillium had two time periods no i didn't read trillium i think it had two time periods uh concurrently well it's not the issue of the concurrent time periods it's the issue that like for example in the wake much like i'm not going to spoil it but like much like the bodies you start out very invested and when it gets to the point of the revelation where like you are finally being told what this thing means then it's like eh, i don't buy it and the usually, dots don't connect. Yeah, usually it's a problem with long form fiction, with you know long running series that set up too much and then can't end it properly. Morning Glories. Well, the even best in example. novels, even in novels. I mean, I just yeah, read. But, I just finished reading a, a Paul Dale's The Dark Lord's Handbook. Okay. So the first book was really good, and then the second book is like, you get to the end, and it's like, well, you sort of just fast forwarded through the entire thing, and I don't really know what you're doing now. <laughs> it's like I don't, I don't get it, but. What's happening? Yeah, and I always thought that miniseries are impervious to that because, well, you have five issues. You don't have time to hang yourself. Yeah. But no. apparently, you can. It's it's a problem with Spurrier. I think I feel like every time he does one of these projects, he gets a little bit closer. He did Silver Surfer Requiem, right? Or he yeah. did a Silver Surfer project. Yeah, yeah, I don't know I, if it was Requiem specifically. I think it was. But that had the same thing where it's like, it starts off good and then it's like, whenever he gets to the moment, the aha moment, you're like, Instead of aha, you're like, uh-huh, 
And I, Spur to me feels like someone who could have been one of the big British guys who yeah. come to the US. It's that but, thing that's holding him back though. But he, he doesn't seem to manage it. He, he doesn't make the landing like Morrison did, like Ellis yeah. did, like Moore did. And yeah, I'm speaking he's... both in terms of making it big in, in America or finishing the, this damn series. But the, see, that's exactly the thing. I think they're connected. Moore always stuck the landing. When you got to the end of Watchmen, when you got to the end of V, or Z, when you get to the end of Sandman, when you get to the end of Zenith, when you get to the end of We Three... Transmetropolitan. Transmetropolitan. Like, when you get to the end of these works, they stick the landing, and I think that might also play a part in why they are so revered today, right? Yeah. Moore had the legendary status that he had. He threw it away, but I mean, he the time that he had it, it was because, you know, when you read... Miracle Man 16 came out last, uh, I think, yesterday, or on, on Wednesday... When it came out, you know, that was the end of the Olympus run. And you're like, God damn, you know, he sticks that landing yeah, big he time. He sealed the deal. And that, I think, is part of the reason why they are as received as well as they are. And if Spurrier isn't there yet, it's because he keeps fumbling the ball at the end. Because you read his work... And it's like, there's so much to recommend here. He's good with characters. He's good with setting up the mystery. Like, when you reach the halfway point of bodies, you're invested. It's like, I want to know what happens next. Like, like, all of these threads are coming together, and it's so great. And he always drops the ball before he makes the touchdown. And I think that might be why he's not as big as he could slash should be. Like, that, like I wish he was better at this. I really uh, do. I'm I'm finding this under failure. It's you know good intentions, but and again, if I cared enough to read it again, I would mark it as a success. Yeah, like Midas Flesh, which is the ending didn't work, but everything before the ending worked. Here, the ending didn't work, and a lot of things before it didn't work. Also, some things did, a yeah. lot of things didn't. I no, might reread it. I, I feel like I, I might give it another try, just to see because. I'll admit, like, maybe I, I miss something. Like, the, yeah, it's possible. this is the Spurrier effect. It's what I call the Spurrier effect. It's like when you get to the end and you're like, so how did I go from enjoying this so much to getting to like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? Did I miss something? Like, it makes you doubt yourself. Did I miss an issue? Yeah, it's like, did I skip a page where like the, that transition was clearer across? And maybe another rereading would crystallize it one way or the other. But quite frankly, my backlog is big enough as it is. So this would be something that I'd go back to, I think, maybe like in a couple of months and try again. But yeah, as it currently stands, I can't recommend it. <sighs> Sad. Sad to end on this note. Yeah. Listen, I, I do feel, though, that every time he does one of these projects, like I said, he gets closer. You know, this was a hell of a lot better than his work at Marvel. Okay. Hell of a lot better. So... Maybe he'll get there someday. Well, and until he does, till that episode, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. And this was the smorgasbord. Bon appetit. <laughs>